Welcome to the Higher Potential Living Podcast, where we discuss improving quality of life by exploring mind, body, and spirit through a mindful lens. Here's your host, Jason Marichello. Hello, and thanks for joining me. On today's episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Lauren Wolf. Lauren is a yoga instructor and a yoga teacher trainer and has spent a number of years studying different traditions around the world, including some neo-tantric practices, yoga, some Buddhist philosophies, and many more, and combines all of these different insights to create a holistic means of teaching some of these ancient practices. Lauren is also passionate about breaking down some of the preconceived notions and conditionings that we have in the Western world about yoga, spirituality, and even sexuality. Lauren is a women's wellness coach and is a big believer in listening to the wisdom of the womb. We had a good time having this conversation and going back and forth about some of these different yogic philosophies. Hope you enjoy. Hello, Lauren. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Jason. So now I know your story quite well because we are, in fact, married. <laughs> this is true, yes. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that I wanted to have in, included in this podcast is a conversation around yoga. In a lot of the other podcast episodes, um, some of these elements are referenced with some of my other guests. And I thought, well, who would be a good person to sit down with and discuss some of the deeper aspects of yoga that maybe in the Western world isn't often talked about. So before we get into all of that, uh, because everyone has a completely different journey as to what brings them to the practice itself. But why don't you start off by just sharing a little bit about what brought you to your yogic path? Sure, absolutely. So um, obviously everyone comes to the practice with different reasons. And the way that I found yoga was really as a recommendation from my chiropractor at the time. Um, and the reason I was seeing the chiropractor was for some pretty interesting issues that were going on in my body. I was having anxiety and panic attacks really, really regularly. I was suffering from migraines, um, almost daily. And I went to the chiropractor as kind of like a, a last ditch effort to figure out what the heck was going on in my body and why I was having these debilitating panic attacks and migraines. Um, I was in college and I, I really wasn't able to function very well because of these things. So, um, as I went to the chiropractor, they took some x-rays of my spine and it was very apparent from these x-rays why my head hurt all the time. And that was kind of the beginning of, of that journey. The chiropractor recommended that I take some yoga classes in order to help keep my spine in the new alignment that we were going to be adjusting it to. And basically just strengthen my spinal muscles. And so, if I may, yeah. what did the x-rays actually show? So the x-rays actually showed um, in my cervical vertebrae, which is the neck, um, I had a reverse curve 
And so that means instead of the, the lovely C shape that the neck should have, um, where the C kind of bows out toward the front of the body, mine was had been straightened, and then it actually had started to reverse curve at the top of my neck, so where the skull actually attaches to the top of the vertebrae. Um, those vertebrae were pushing forward quite far, and it was definitely creating a lot of discomfort and pain. And just so people who might be listening wondering, how the heck does that happen to a person? Do you want to explain a little bit about what you went to school for? Sure, yeah. So um, I was in school for animation at the time. And it was toward the end of my school days. So that was a four-year bachelor's degree program. And toward the end of it is when I was really feeling like I, I didn't know what else to do. I thought that my body was just against me and uh, that we weren't getting along. But sitting at a desk for eight plus hours a day was clearly not serving me very well. And my body was not happy with me. And you were hand drawing. So you were not only sitting at a desk, but you were hunched over the desk, putting your face (laughs) as close to the paper as possible while Mm -hmm. you make these tiny little marks with your hands. Yes. And I I had just completed a, um, a, an apprenticeship for cleanup. Uh, animation, which is very tedious, and you tend to get very close to the pages because you are drawing in such fine, clean lines. You really have to be very close to it. My eyesight was suffering and everything else, too. Like, it was not a good thing for me, honestly. (laughs) Okay, so coming back to yoga. Mm -hmm. So then your chiropractor uh, recommended it, which is pretty impressive because that would have been what? That would have been... Like 2006 or seven. Right. Yeah. And although it was here, definitely in the Western world, it hadn't taken the big boom yet. It was just starting to ramp up, I think, to what we see in the Western world today. But your chiropractor recommended that you try it. Mm-hmm. And what was the first introduction for you to yoga? So I told one of my best friends about this, and she had also been thinking about trying yoga because she had some really bad anxiety as well. So the two of us signed up for a Hatha Yoga eight-week program just to beginner course at the Sheridan gym, actually. So we took this together and it was really incredible. After the first class, I felt fantastic. I had not felt calm in probably years and I felt so peaceful lying there in Shavasana, which is the resting pose at the end of the class. I felt like I had no headache. I remember it so clearly, like it's such a clear memory, a picture in my mind of me lying there with my, I had my eyes open and I was looking at the gym ceiling and just thinking, oh my God, I feel fantastic. Like I feel fine. There is nothing wrong with me in this moment. And I I couldn't believe it. I was completely blown away. So we did the eight weeks and then I think we signed up for another eight weeks (laughs) because they were offering it again. And then once um, they weren't they were no longer offering that program. Um, and I was close to graduating anyway. I found a, a yoga studio in Oakville that I really liked. And I had my first like hardcore yoga teacher who I really resonated with. And, and she taught me a lot. And that's when I really fell in love with how amazing the practice can be. So then fast forward, because now I'm kind of like, now I've kind of gotten <laughs> into the picture here. So I know a little bit of, of this uh, part of your life as well. True. But then fast forward, you and I ended up um, 
living together and then eventually selling our stuff and traveling around the world. And that eventually took us to India, yeah, which was definitely a next big step for you on the path of, of yoga. But leading up to that point, did you know much about, and we're going to get to this for all those that are listening, but did you know much about all of the other aspects of yoga that you do today? Like what was the... No, not really. Um, I started asking a lot of questions, certainly, because I knew that my my teacher, uh, her name was Denise. I freaking love her. Um, she will always have a special place in my heart. She um, was able to answer a lot of my questions about things that came up in my practice while I was in the studio, while I was on my mat, like bawling my face off in some of those hip openers, which I know is a very common experience now, but at mm. the time I thought it was, you know, I was weird and <laughs> there was something seriously wrong with me. Um, things like that. And she started really opening my mind to, the fact that there was more. She was the first person who actually recommended that I take a teacher training. And at the time I was like, um, are you crazy? Like, there's no freaking way I could teach this. I know nothing. And I, I was also completely, um, I didn't feel like I could teach anything. I, I had really, really bad anxiety speaking in front of people. Um, I dealt with that all through school as well, like to the point where I would not black out, but like almost because I didn't remember anything about any of my presentations. I remember walking up to the front of the room and then I remember sitting back down, everything in between completely gone. Like I couldn't be in front of people. I had a lot of anxiety around that. So I thought there's no way I can be a yoga teacher. Like no way. Absolutely not. So even when we were traveling before you got to, before we got to India and you took your 200 hour teacher training and everything, I remember you slowly starting to try to face that fear mm -hmm. with sometimes complete strangers that we would meet <laughs> and you'd just be doing your morning yoga practice and invite other people to come in, participate with you. And I remember the conversations that we had about how that was pushing your edge, you know, further and further and further each time. And now, you know, it's so interesting as we do our teacher training mm -hmm. now that we offer at this studio and you tell this story to people and everyone's just shocked. Yeah. That the fact that that was you at one point in time. I'm a very different person now. I mean, <laughs> I'm I I'm a lot calmer. I do still sometimes get anxiety, um, but it's rare and it's not debilitating like it used to be. Like there's there's a lot of other things that I've dealt with uh, in relation to that that maybe we maybe we have time for in this episode, maybe not. But um, there were a lot of underlying issues with that as well. Uh, but yeah, honestly, <laughs> what really kind of forced me to start to face that fear of teaching was that my dad forced me into teaching his drum classes sometimes. So um, my dad and I, and eventually you, my dad and I uh, were learning West African percussion from some amazing teachers, including West African masters who would come over to Toronto and we would do their like workshops and intensives. And um, sometimes as he was teaching beginners, 
there would come a, a conflict and he wasn't able to teach his class that week. And so he asked me to do it and I turned him down so many times. And then there came a point where he just basically said, no, you're going to teach it. <laughs> and, uh, I, I can't hide the fact that I was, I was not very happy with that at first, but I started getting more comfortable just teaching what I knew, which was, to my surprise, I, I started to know quite a lot and I was able to pass on a lot of information, certainly to beginners. I started to feel more comfortable with that. And so it wasn't until I started feeling comfortable teaching drums that I even entertained the idea of possibly teaching yoga. Well, and this is kind of like a little bit of a prelude to how the whole process within yoga is is so holistic, how it's inter tangled with so many different elements of our lives our confidence standing in front of a crowd whether it be to teach yoga or to mm -hmm. teach drum comes down so much to self-worth and the way that you see your own um, values and everything and and the, the narratives that run through our mind about you know am i worthy of being up here <laughs> yeah completely so moving forward again now we're in india and it's time for the yoga teacher training. And I had a completely different perspective because I didn't take my teacher training at the same time as you. Yeah. I was just enjoying India, <laughs> meditating and talking to the gurus and stuff like that while you were pretty intensively taking your teacher training. Yeah. And I remember you coming back into the hut at night and stuff like that and starting to explain some of these deeper philosophies. And, and the thing that I think I remember standing out really for me is how what I had seen you doing in yoga, because yoga really wasn't my forte at that point in time, what I had seen you doing in yoga in your sun salutations and all these other postures, and then you'd come back and say, we spent hours just breathing and moving our ankles and wrists today. That just seemed so foreign to me. I started thinking like, <laughs> what did we pay all this money for? But do you want to speak a little bit to that kind of like difference of the foundation building that was introduced to you there compared to what we often just see when we jump into a classroom here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think what we often see is just the external um, representation of yoga, which is physical postures for the most part. Um, you don't see a lot of people like sitting in the park meditating sometimes, mm. <laughs> but for the most part, what we see is like the physical fitness kind of aspect of it, which is part of yoga because in the tradition, it's believed that the body is the vehicle for the spirit while we're here living this human existence. So we do need to keep the body healthy in order for the rest of our systems, our subtle body, our mind, our emotions, and everything else healthy because they're all connected. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, mostly what we see is postures, is asana. And it's really such a tiny, tiny piece of the puzzle that is yoga. There's so much more to it. But really, what you're speaking to with like spending hours just rolling our wrists and our ankles and just focusing on breath and one particular movement is the mind-body-breath connection. It's really what is important in the practice is being fully present with whatever you're doing, however simple, however mundane, however normal instead of, and you talk about automatic pilot a lot, instead of 
just being on like autopilot. Mm -hmm. You're being present fully with whatever your experience is. And there's so much to be learned and felt in that present moment. So, so much of what the first week of my teacher training was, was just training us to be mindful. And I didn't really think about it that way at the time. I felt amazing. I mean, I spent all day breathing and moving my body in such simple, but beautiful ways. But now looking back, it's like, that was mindfulness. That was mm-hmm. Premji teaching us how to be in our bodies in each moment. And, you know, me at the time, I was coming from more of a Buddhist background, more of the mindfulness aspects to everything. I, I was spending a lot of time meditating at the time. And that was the, the big, I guess, shocker for me is like what you were describing was mm-hmm. moving meditation. Mm-hmm. It was like single pointed focus on the breath or single pointed focus on the body and withdrawing your senses inward. And for me, that's not what I saw as yoga. And so I remember one of the conversations I had with one of the gurus on the ashram, they said, so are, are you a, a yogi as well? And I said, no, 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 I, you know, I just stick to my meditation and I do this and I do this. And they would witness what I was doing throughout the days. And they'd say, no, you're, you're a yogi. Like, no, 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 that's my wife. She does the yoga. I just do the meditation and all this kind of stuff. And they would just shake their head knowingly <laughs> and laugh at me. But it's true. It's it's all one. Mm-hmm. But again, we just we only start to see when we go into a class, especially in the beginning, and it can change over time as you start to feel inward. But when you first go to that class and you see the sweat and your ego is still um, speaking so strongly into your ear, whispering into your ear of like, oh, what's the person next to me doing? How do I keep up with them? And really seeing it as like a physical competition. Yeah. It's not until that kind of like sets aside or we can set it aside that we can actually start to feel and notice like, oh yeah, I'm really connected with my breath right now. And I'm really connected to my balance and how that's moving. And I'm not thinking about my bills at the end of the month when I'm in my yoga class and all this kind of stuff. So really, you know, coming down to that, it's, it's a feeling process, but for people Mm -hmm. who haven't got to that point, perhaps you touched a little bit on how the asana or the postures is such a small portion of yoga. And this is one of my favorite, um, realizations, I guess, first of all, can we define yoga? What is yoga? So the word yoga means union to yoke, to bring together, all of the different pieces of ourselves. We might think of it as bringing together mind and body, but it's really everything. It's really about finding yourself completely absorbed in the present moment, bringing it all together. Being one with exactly. whatever is in the Oneness. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. So when we look at yoga, what are so I know the answer to this, but I want you to <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's the four paths, mm-hmm. and I remember when I first like got introduced to the four paths and the eight limbs, that was also mind blowing just to see how in the root of the tradition, the asanas and the postures has such a small portion of it, so there's these four paths. Can you speak a little bit to those paths because the idea is basically that any one of these paths can be the way up the mountain. Um, as it were, yeah, the way to reach that self-realization. Exactly. And it's not just limited to these four paths, certainly, but in the yogic tradition, typically we break them down into four paths. So one of the paths is bhakti yoga. Bhakti means devotion. And this would be 
things like um, what we see in kundalini yoga. It's very devotional. We might focus on devotion to the self or devotion to something greater than us, whether you believe that's God or goddess, source, higher consciousness, whatever. And it might look like chanting and kirtan and uh, prayer. Those are all devotional practices. Um, so that's one of them. Another is karma yoga. That might be a more familiar word to some people. Karma means means action. And karma yoga is the yoga of action. And it's often related to seva, which is selfless service. So acts of service as your path to enlightenment, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another is yana yoga. And yana yoga is the path of knowledge. And so this is the yoga of study, studying scriptures, studying yourself, studying the yoga texts, the Vedas, um, the Bhagavad Gita, all of these things. Um, it's really about just gaining knowledge about yourself and the universe. Mm-hmm. And then the royal path, which is Raja yoga, which does encompass all other paths. This is typically what we find Hatha yoga under. And Hatha yoga is the tradition of the eight limbs, which we are about to talk about, I believe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I remember from a, um, a contemplative meditation standpoint, even just those four paths and recognizing if the ultimate goal, mm-hmm. and I, I spoke with um, in one of my previous podcast episodes with Bhakti Marga Swami, mm-hmm. who is a Bhakti uh, yogi, and he talks a little bit about that and his devotional path and everything. But this idea of self-realization or leaving this plane, this existence cleaner um, or as clean as possible to think of what it truly means to like be in selfless service and to really think about these different components of like, yeah, what would that actually feel like to not even feel like satisfaction if I were to help someone cross the street, if I'm walking away and I'm smiling and I feel good about it that in some way is actually me getting something from it. So to have yourself completely programmed and wired from practice and practice and practice to just be in a state of, of selfless service, mm-hmm. to not have to think about it, to have that be your second nature and you walk away and it doesn't even phase you because that's just the state that you are in. Um, and then again, the knowledge in the Bhagavad Gita uh, it talks about, and we again talked about this with um, Bhakti Marga Swami, is those different paths of like how ignorance is the, the lowest of the human paths. Mm-hmm. And to just try to gain as much knowledge, never stop getting what we can out of this human existence. Learn and learn and learn as much as you can and have fun along the way. Exactly. There's no destination there because we can never know everything, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's, it's the practice of dispelling ignorance. So, okay. We have these four paths and in one of those paths is this realm of Hatha yoga. Mm-hmm. And in there is the eight limbs. Yes. So what are these eight limbs all about? So for anyone who has practiced Ashtanga yoga, Ashta means eight. Anga is limb. And so this path, Ashtanga yoga, is actually the path of these eight limbs. But it's encompassed in Hatha yoga. Hatha is a term that also means union. It's all about um, combining the yin and the yang and finding balance. And it does this through a holistic 
approach. So the eight limbs encompass everything that we typically associate with yoga. And there are eight of them and they kind of go in an order. Like it's, it's specific. And it was developed by uh, Patanjali, who was a sage many hundreds of years ago. And he was the first one who kind of put this into writing, who Mm. put it wrote it down, basically. Yoga has been practiced for thousands of years, but he was the first one who put it into writing. Mm -hmm. So he's accredited with the eight limbs as a culmination of the practice. So in the first limb, the first two limbs, really, the yamas and the niyamas, these are ethical and personal practices or observances. And so it's basically like the yogi code of conduct. Mm. It's how you conduct yourself privately and in the world. Mm -hmm. And then the third limb is asana. So that is what we typically see asana. It means posture or pose. So the poses that we typically see, that's the third limb. That's Mm -hmm. asana. And it's about moving the body in order to be a fit vehicle for prana and life force energy, which we'll talk about in a moment, because the fourth limb is pranayama. So pranayama is breath retention or breath control. And so in conjunction with asana, we use breath to bring us into the present moment, to control our mind, and to move that life force energy throughout the body effectively, uh, hopefully to extend our life mm-hmm. while we're here so that we can gain more knowledge in this lifetime. And then the fifth limb is pratyahara, which you spoke to a little bit earlier. Pratyahara means to withdraw the senses. And so it's about bringing your focus away from the external, away from all the distractions that we encounter in our lives during the day, and even in our minds during the day, into our body, into the more internal mind into our breath and into the subtle energy that we are able to feel in our body. So withdrawal of the senses, that's Pratyahara, the fifth limb. And then Dharana is concentration. Concentration is the beginning stage of meditation. It's like the focus needed for meditation. Dhyana, which is the seventh limb, is the state of meditation or sometimes referred to as Zen. And then the final eighth limb is samadhi, which is translated to enlightenment or self-realization. It's basically having that perfect knowledge of yourself. And it seems unattainable for a lot of people getting to that state of samadhi, but we can glimpse it in little ways in our lives every day when everything just seems perfectly aligned and in balance, even if it's for a split second that is the state of samadhi. That's the state of total absorption and bliss. That's the ultimate goal. So I appreciate that you are um, working at simplifying as much as possible <laughs> all of this. And uh, they're complex um, oh, yeah. terms. <laughs> but even for those that are like hearing the Sanskrit words being put out there and everything and are listening to this and thinking like, okay, she's losing me here. <laughs> uh, let's break that down a little bit more. Sure. So you talked about uh, the first two limbs being these personal and ethical observances. And um, for me, I kind of related to I, I kind of took to them the same way that I took to like the four agreements the first time I heard those, where in the four agreements, it talks about, 
you know, don't take things personally and, you know, always do your best. And now I'm going to forget the four limbs. So you can help me out with that. <laughs> the four agreements you mean? Or four agreements. Yeah. <laughs> By Don Miguel Ruiz. So yes, always do your best. Don't make assumptions. Uh, be impeccable with your word. Right. That's the first one. Yes. And the last one was... It'll come to us before we're oh, done the goodness. podcast. <laughs> anyway, so I remember when I first, many moons ago, obviously, because I can't remember them, um, when I first read that book, it was like, oh, yeah, because I was brought up Catholic, and we had, like, the Ten Commandments, mm -hmm. which were kind of, like, drilled into us <laughs> from a place of fear in a lot of ways. It's like, you have to do this, otherwise you know, the repercussions we don't even want to mention. Well, no, they mentioned it because they wanted to drive that home. Yeah. But um, all of a sudden shifting, it's like, okay, well, this isn't out of fear base. This is like, if I want to get the most out of the human experience. So then it was a choice. It's like nothing bad is going to happen to me, but there's so much good that can come from this. There's so much more potential that can come from recognizing this. So having to see that and then make the step myself it was, it felt so much more mm -hmm. rewarding than being told, you know, observe these practices otherwise, or, or basically, or else. Or else you go to hell or whatever it was. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> some of the ones we, we don't have to necessarily get into all of the yamas and niyamas, but to kind of, for those that have no idea what these are mm -hmm. to get into some of them, like we're talking about things like, what does it mean to truly be content mm -hmm. in life? And, you know, I had a, even though I've been doing this for a while now, and I help you with the yoga teacher training we do here, and there's something about the last time explaining this to our last group of yoga teacher trainees mm. that really just kind of like stuck out when we had an open conversation. It was just like a review day and we were talking about some of these and it's so easy to just memorize things for a lot of people True. to memorize the word contentment and say, okay, Santosha means contentment. Great. Check. But to challenge ourselves to like, what does it really mean to be content? Mm -hmm. And where do I draw the line with some of these things? It's like it's, there's, even though there's these 10 yamas and niyamas, they're so subjective for you to see how they fit into your life. Like, do I, you know, where do I draw the line with contentment when I'm in an abusive relationship mm -hmm. or, totally. you know, in all these challenging times for us. So it can really become a whole practice of contemplation and deep reflection, which helps us on that path to self-realization. Absolutely. And they're kind of in an order as well, like the eight limbs are. By the way, the fourth agreement was don't take anything personally. There it is. <laughs> Which was a, is a great one. Yeah. <laughs> so that's one of the ones that really helped me. But um, yeah, they're kind of also in an order. So you just mentioned about like contentment and... But what if you're in an abusive relationship? How do you practice? Should you practice contentment mm -hmm. in an abusive relationship? Well, the first of the yamas is ahimsa, which is non-harming. And that means to yourself as well as others. Mm -hmm. So if you are in a harmful situation, that's something that you do need to get out of, whether it's harming you or other people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like and again, <laughs> there's a balance and that's really hard. Non-harming. That was one yeah. of the other ones that we brought up in the conversation is, okay, well, we have this image of, you know, mm -hmm. this sagely monk, Swami guru, I'll throw out all the fancy words. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But just being in this place of, of non-harming. And now what if you say, yes, you know, I don't even swat a mosquito and I'm like the Janes and I brush away the insects in front of me and all this. Mm -hmm. But what if 
you are in a situation where you're witnessing someone hurting somebody else or hurting many other people. And you now are in a position where your actions could stop the suffering from many others. And this is where like so much of this is like, I'm not going to give you the answer. Mm -hmm. You need to ask yourself these questions of, okay, well, would I harm to prevent harm? Yeah. And there's no right or wrong answer there. No, that's a dilemma that was certainly discussed in the Bhagavad Gita. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it is, there is no black and white answer. There's a lot of of debate and discussion around these things because it is a moral dilemma. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, often a lot of yogis would say the path of least harm, Mm -hmm. which again can be debated because Mm -hmm. we can't tell the future. We don't know all the facts necessarily about every situation either. So yeah, ultimately using your meditation practice to sit with and feel into what would be the best for you and all involved in this situation. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if, if more of us did that in our lives, the world would be a very different place. <laughs> so I originally said we weren't going to go into the Yamas and Niyamas, but I, I kind of feel like we're working our way through. So we yeah, have, kind of are. We have a Himsa. Yeah. And then, so which is the non-harming. Yes. And then we have... Satya. Satya is the second Yama and Satya is truth. Um, Satya is all about being truthful with yourself mm-hmm. and others, um, and in all your dealings. And it's also about, again, like that self-reflection, knowing what is true for you and what you need and want in order to be the best version of yourself. And even just being in the mindset of wanting to find the truth. Yeah. So completely. being open for your mind to be changed, mm. which is it's very difficult for many of Absolutely. us. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we have <laughs> the third one. Ashteya. Ashteya, which is uh non-stealing. So mm-hmm. this is more of like the practical kind of side of the truth part or the honesty part in Satya. Um and we talk about that a lot as being like not not taking what is not freely given. Mm-hmm. So it deals with exploitation. Mm-hmm. It deals with manipulation. And it goes a lot deeper than just, you know, not taking something you didn't pay for. But mm-hmm. nothing is free. Mm-hmm. Everything costs something. It doesn't mean it has to be monetary, but everything costs something. So you have to take into account what you might be taking or what someone else might be taking from you that is costing transfer of energy. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. When you have those conversations with people, then you just feel completely drained at Mm, the end of it. There's those energy vampires in this world. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And a lot of it for me comes down to time. Mm -hmm. Time is something that is finite. We only have a certain amount of time here on this planet and in this life. So are you stealing time from yourself or from other people when you shouldn't or don't need to? Mm-hmm. Again, very subjective. Very. Time is, is one of those interesting things. It's finite, yet it's relative. Yes, <laughs> I know. One of those paradoxes. <laughs> okay, so we have um, Ashteya. Yes, Ahansa, Satya, Ashteya, Brahmacharya. So Brahmacharya is the fourth one, and it's very interesting. It was originally thought to mean abstinence. Another word that I like about that that kind of translates is moderation. Mm-hmm. Um, we do talk about moderating sexual energy. This mm-hmm. was something that 
did come up from the original texts because life force, prana, is also finite. Energy cannot be destroyed or created. Mm-hmm. But we talked about it being transferred, which is totally possible. So conserving our energy, whether it be sexual or otherwise, is part of brahmacharya. It's also about our habits, like the food we eat, how much we sleep, how much we exercise, mm-hmm. moderation in all things to keep ourselves as healthy as possible. That's really what brahmacharya is about. Mm-hmm. And just for... Again, to kind of clarify for those that might be listening, like that sexual energy, that mm-hmm. kundalini energy. Yes. Um, in these traditions, it's not just literally the energy I have to have sex. <laughs> no, no, no. It is creative energy. Yes. It is the energy that um, helps us to, for lack of a better term, birth ideas into this Completely. world. And, and to all this kind of stuff. So yeah. when we think about how prana, those breathing exercises are developed to help stimulate that energy and bring it into our body. And we use our body as a container, then it would make sense why if we're going through all of this work to fill this container, that we want to moderate how much of that we're, we're putting out there exactly, and, and just be in control of it. Exactly. You got it. So that's brahmacharya. Aparigraha is the last of the yamas. And this is non-grasping or Mm -hmm. non-coveting, it's all about Mm non-attachment. It's also about not struggling for things that are not meant for us. And it bleeds into the first of the niyamas, which is contentment, santosha, Mm -hmm. or sorry, no, that's the second one, never mind. Um, But it does bleed into santosha, um, about being like happy with where you are, in your point in the journey, because you'll never be at the same point mm-hmm. ever again. So you don't need to grasp for what might be coming for you down the road. You can you can simply be where you are. There definitely is a bleed over there, and Saucha is the the contentment. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, because I related to again the the yoga studio. Mm-hmm. We'll see so many people who will walk in and say, "I can't even." touch my toes. Mm-hmm. I'm so inflexible yep. and say, okay, well, you know, it's not about becoming more flexible. It's about getting your body to be usable for you and what you do on a regular basis. Like, yeah. do you need to be able to put yourself in a pretzel or is that just your <laughs> ego saying, I want exactly. to be able to do that <laughs> so much. And there's something to be said when we really step back and look at it and say like, what a miracle it is to just be able to walk into a class, mm-hmm. to be able to have a room here where we feel safe, where we can let our guard down go inward and withdraw the senses in and do a yoga class. And if we are not practicing some of that uh, non-grasping mm-hmm. or contentment, then if my first marker is, yeah, I want to touch my toes and then I touch my toes and then I'm like, okay, now I want to get my forehead to the ground. And so then you strive and strive and strive to get that. And then now I want to be able to wrap my legs behind my head and it just keeps going and going. <laughs> it and it's such a metaphor for our lives in general mm-hmm. with what we think is going to bring us happiness and everything else. It's always reaching for that carrot that's dangling just beyond where are the extent of our reaches. Yeah. And we're never going to be content if we're always just grasping and reaching. Yeah. And I think Aparigraha is, is also about equity and not equality Mm. because everyone's journey is different and needs to be different because we are just different people, different spirits that we're in different bodies. I think that a lot of it is about appreciating where you are without having to compare 
to anyone else mm-hmm. or anyone else's journey mm-hmm. because it's it's not about that it's about what you need to be healthy and well and to find that self-realization i remember that it was i think it was an osteopath that I first went to because I have some really tight hips mm. and hamstrings mm-hmm. and that was that was totally me as I wanted to be able to get more flexibility like I own a yoga studio and I you know can't flatten myself down and all that and I could catch <laughs> those stories yeah. being created and that was when someone finally said like but do you need to like does your lifestyle are you inhibited in any way by not being able to be a pretzel and really no the answer is no. Like I wake up, I can walk, I can move, I can still do a yoga practice. It may not look like yours does, but it's my yoga practice and I still leave it yeah. feeling good in my body. Exactly. That's what it's about. It's about having a usable body, a body that's healthy and that does what you need it to do in this life. Yeah. It's not about what shape mm-hmm. it makes. So if we go then from... um Pranigraha to Saucha. Saucha is purity. Saucha is cleanliness. So this is the first of the niyamas, the second limb. And it's about keeping your body and your mind and your spirit as healthy and clean as possible. Like you're talking about with Swami Marga or um, Bhakti Marga Swami, who was talking about leaving this life as clean as possible. Mm. This is about the practice of purifying yourself every day. And I don't want that to sound like really dogmatic and religious, like how just in my experience, Catholicism and a lot of religious, um, sects talk about purifying yourself. It's not like we're getting the demons out or anything like this. It's like that. I don't know. It well, just, I had, it's okay. A, it's to some degree. <laughs> yes. In a metaphorical way. Sure. But it is about, it is about keeping our body and mind and our environment as clean as possible mm-hmm. um, in all the ways, energetically, physically, everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you can you can read into that with a lot, but I, I look at it in some of like the, uh, the neo-tantric or tantric practices yeah. where it's like to get yourself into the state of practicing, there is typically a tradition of just cleaning of just making sure your space is clear, mm-hmm. that your mind is clear. Yep. And even like a physical, like clean myself before I go into certain practices. Like in, in a lot of, um, we were told when you were in India, we were told that you'd actually do your, take your shower or wash yourself before you'd actually go into a yoga practice rather yeah. than what we think of. I'm just going to run into it, get all sweaty and everything else and then <laughs> clean myself afterwards. Yeah. It's like entering into the practice clean as well. Yeah, Totally. Absolutely. And then Santosha comes after, which is the contentment and mm-hmm. appreciation for where we are that we were just talking about. And then um, Saucha, Santosha. I'm going to actually pause oh, yeah, there for sure. a second because I want to talk a little bit more about the contentment aspect because we're recording this right now during COVID. Yeah. And this is this is a very prevalent mm-hmm. right now is being content. <laughs> I was having a conversation with someone today and I was telling them, yeah, you know, the yoga studio, it's, it's pretty quiet around here and all this. And like, I'm so sorry. And I know this must be super hard and everything. And it's, you know, it's one of those things like, okay, well, there's nothing I can do about the situation. Mm-hmm. And like it, and this is a big thing that I often talk to people about with the doing and the being mode is if there's something that you can do, 
then you can do it. This is, it sounds very simplified. If mm-hmm. there's something you can do about your current situation, then you can do it. But after it gets to a certain point, then you could actually be just doing more harm. So letting go and just being content with the situation. One of the stories I often share that really drove this home for me was when I was driving, I think I was driving to teach a yoga class or teach one of my classes. And I was driving along the highway and my car broke down on the side of the road. So first of all, you know, you get this panic, like, oh my goodness, this is happening. I wasn't expecting for this to happen. So the first thing is, what can I do in this situation right now? One, I I called you Mm -hmm. and I said, I'm not going to be able to teach this (laughs) class. Can you find someone to cover it for me? Yeah. So I, yeah, I went into that doing mode to try to take care of the situation. I let everyone know that I had to know. I called uh, roadside assistance to make sure that they were on their way, but it was a particularly busy day. So they said it was going to be like three hours before anyone got to me. So after I made all the calls and did all the things, what we'll often see is the mind wants to just keep wandering. It wants to keep going through like, how can I fix the situation? How can I do more, do more, do more, do more. But then eventually you're just running this like hamster wheel. Exactly. You're not getting anywhere. And that doing then turns to worry and anxiety and stress and build stress within your body. So remember having this realization in that moment, which doesn't always happen to be able to find that clarity. But in this moment, um, I was able to, to just say like, you know what, when was the last time I meditated for three hours? (laughs) And it was just a beautiful experience sitting on the side of the road, meditating. The tow truck driver eventually showed up and I had a big smile on my face and he's like, you are the happiest guy I have ever picked up (laughs) on the side of the road after waiting for three hours. And it was a really good experience experience overall and that was being that part of that was the contentment for this is my situation i'm going to be i can be content in this yeah i don't need to ruminate and fester on my situation this is where i am i can be okay here yeah i think the first part of that is acceptance it's like yep this is happening a lot of us just like refuse to accept the situation that we Mm -hmm. find ourselves in whatever that is Mm -hmm. and so much stress and frustration and discontent comes from just not accepting like, okay, this is, these are the facts. This is where I am. This is how the the situation is right now. Yeah. See that a lot right now. Mm -hmm. So we have Saucha. Yep. Santosha. Yep. And then Tapas. Ah, yes. Tapas. (laughs) Tapas is discipline, self-discipline. And it's also a big one like this is something that so many people struggle with as well and it could be simply the discipline to like wake up in the morning it could be the discipline to eat those foods that you know are are good for you um, rather than choosing the easy option it can be all kinds of things but it does come down to like everything else that we've talked about about the Mm non-harming about the contentment about the moderation the brahmacharya yes absolutely discipline if there's putting it into action a delicious cake in front of you and you taste one (laughs) slice and you're like i don't need another slice but but you want it it." (laughs) yeah like this is the surface layer yes that's very surface but of this willpower but applicable but applicable yeah because i believe personally Start with those small things. Totally. Instead of like, say, quitting smoking or something like that, which could be so difficult for so many people. Yes. Um, Or sometimes sexual addiction and all Mm -hmm. these other things that come up in in real life situations. Those can be seem like like Everest. They can seem like these insurmountable peaks. But if we start with like 
getting up in the morning, showing up to a yoga mat or going for a run or doing these things that we often tend to beat ourselves up for after the fact. If we don't do them. If we don't do them. Yes. Yeah. Um, which again comes into contentment. But um, if we start with those little things, then it shows us that we can possibly look at those those big Everest kind of uh, things in our lives and and accomplish what we're trying to set out to do. This is exactly what the Yoga Sutras talks about when it comes to tapas. It tells us that when we practice tapas, even in those small ways, when we practice that willpower and discipline, it builds fire and that fire grows and grows and grows. And so our willpower expands. Mm. And so when we're practiced in those little things, our willpower grows and then we're able to tackle those larger challenges. And from a neuroscience standpoint, which is, as you know, uh, a passion of mine, for sure, it is um, there is a muscle in our brain that allows us to be able to have that control over the switchboard in our mind and practicing those little things strengthens that muscle yeah. until it's a very strong muscle. And we can even have the will to say, no, now's not the time for thinking it's the time for sleep. And mm -hmm. then your body and your mind listens. Mm -hmm. It's when you say, I don't want to be angry anymore. I want to feel happy and your body and mind listens. And it's the same you know, within reason, there's lots of firing that happens yeah, within lots the brain, of for but sure. it's the same part of the brain that will say like, no, I don't need that cake right now. Yeah. I don't need to have the whole bag of chips. I can only have five, you know, that whole, totally. what is it? Lays. You can't have oh just my one. God, yes. Have just one and like show <laughs> that yourself that you can do it. Yeah. My, my tapas practice with that is I don't buy the bag of chips anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, know yourself right <laughs> you do have to know yourself for sure we can talk about tapas all day it's just one of those one of those things that's such a big topic and mm -hmm. something that's so like human that we just we all struggle with but you can like hack your brain mm -hmm. to like really get a bit of a high like re it releases dopamine when we accomplish those things mm -hmm. and and we can get addicted to that feeling of dopamine so we can yeah there's all kinds of things that we can do to to increase our success with with discipline as well but it is a practice and it takes practice just like anything else mm -hmm. yeah so we have tapas yes the fourth niyama is svadhyaya, and this one, it, it translates as self-study. Mm -hmm. So we've done all of these amazing things, and we've got our, our practice of tapas, and okay, what are we learning from ourselves with this? Asking the question of yeah. why was it so hard for me yeah. to not have that cookie? Exactly. <laughs> why was it hard for me to be content with so much of the my why. body, my mind? Yeah, asking those questions. Yes, exactly. So studying your habits, your beliefs, your conditioning, all of this comes under svadhyaya and a yoga practice, meditation and pranayama and asana or the postures are all parts of yoga that also help us to discover more about ourselves. But it's a, it's a lifelong practice of, of self-study. Because it definitely comes up in a physical practice when totally. we get into asana, which mm -hmm. is after the yamas and the niyamas, yeah. is like, okay, well, why doesn't that feel good in my body? And, you know, where do I want my hips to be mm -hmm. facing and all this kind of stuff? So there is a lot of that when, again, we can let go of what's happening on the mat beside us, start to bring our senses in more mm -hmm. like, oh, 
okay, it's time for me to meet my body and figure out what's going on within that. And it's a lot about that open mind that you were talking about earlier and cultivating curiosity. Mm -hmm. Curiosity is such a beautiful mindset to have when you're trying new things or when you're doing something for the millionth time. Can you actually get curious about like, what is my experience of this today Mm -hmm. in this moment? You'll often hear yoga teachers ask you to meet the mat like it's your first time or try this pose like you've never done it before. And that's exactly what this is. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, what can you learn from this experience as it's unfolding right now without like with letting go of whatever happened yesterday or last time you were there? And I think too of some of the conversations I've had with some of my clients of even asking the question like, okay, so we're here now because you had a fight with your partner and you're feeling bad because you said some things that you wish you hadn't said and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. Well, instead of beating ourselves up for, for it, let's look at why those things came up. Why did it feel like you got triggered when your partner mentioned your dad's name yeah. or something like yeah. that? You know, there's totally. all these kinds of things. And so we end up just defending whatever our points are or whatever, instead of often asking like, why was that so triggering for me? Yeah. Why did I get so angry when that person passed me on the road? And like all these little seemingly silly things yeah. that can be huge insights into our Like into when our you're lives. scrolling on Facebook and you look at the comments thread of something and you start to feel like, oh my God, like I need to say something because I'm so triggered by what all these other people are saying. It's like, okay, do you let yourself get triggered or do you use that as an inquiry as to why am I so triggered by this? It's, it's all about self-awareness and self-awareness is that first real catalyst for change. If you don't know what you want to change, then how Mm -hmm. can you change it consciously? Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So the last one, (laughs) the last one is Ishvara Pranidhan. So this means literally devotion to God. However, It's devotion to whatever you believe to be higher or bigger than you, your Mm -hmm. community, your family. Maybe it just comes down to one other person. Or even that part within you that is connected to the bigger picture. Exactly. Mm -hmm. When we close our yoga practice, we say namaste. Namaste is that recognition of that same light or source or divinity within me sees that same within you Mm -hmm. and it yes we are all connected through so many means but that spark of consciousness is within all of us and we can see and recognize that you sitting across from me are a unique individual however there's something in us that is the same and recognizes that in each other There's a visual that I can't remember where I first heard it, but I like it. um, That talked about these individual rays of sunshine Mm. that one day decided to wrap themselves in skin and clothing (laughs) and all this kind of stuff and then start calling themselves different things, calling themselves different names and all this kind of stuff. And yet underneath it, there's still just rays of sunshine. There's still just these little pockets of this giant ball of light and energy and everything that's just radiating through us all 
but we were pretty proud of our little casings that we put around <laughs> ourselves. Yes, and all the clothing and, and jewelry of and course. everything else that goes with it, right? But, but yeah, it is it is devotion or surrender to something greater than ourselves. Maybe it's universal consciousness. Maybe it's um, the mama. Maybe it's Mama Earth, like her spirit, her wisdom that we would all be better off for listening to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've now, we've kind of, we kind of went through the eight lands, <laughs> we did. went back to the Yamas and Niyamas, went through them. So like, basically you can see how after going through these personal and ethical observances, then you go through this idea of, okay, now I've done all this internal work. Yeah. Now I'm going to show up to my mat. Yeah. I'm going to do my yoga practice. While there, I'm going to focus on my breath. So I go through the pranayama aspect. I'm going to start bringing my senses in. I'm going to pick a focus and start honing in on my focus, which can bring me to a state of meditation, which can bring me to this higher state of being. Exactly. And it was Iyengar uh, who passed away a few years ago, but uh, he was... Uh, a great yogi and he was the one who said like without the yamas and niyamas asana postures is just postures it's just calisthenics Mm -hmm. without that foundation that spiritual connected foundation Mm -hmm. it's just you're moving your body which there's great benefit to all of that sure Mm -hmm. but without that foundation it's not really yoga right yeah So one of the things for those listening, and we get the question from all of our yoga teacher trainees, Mm -hmm. but like in an hour class or a 90 minute class, how do you get all of this? (laughs) Especially for yoga teachers. One of the questions is for new yoga teachers is how do I try to fit all this in to teach my students in 60 minutes, in 90 minutes? Well, you can't in the way that we're doing it right now. Right, through just talking and using our heads, using our brains. they're not there to just be talked at. No. People come to yoga class typically because they need to move their body or they need to relax. They need to focus on themselves and be nourished for an hour or 90 minutes or whatever it is. So... You as a yoga teacher, the best way that you can teach this is by example, is Mm -hmm. by living it, living your practice off the mat, because it isn't just something that we do for an hour a day. Mm -hmm. Yoga isn't an exercise or fitness class. Really, it isn't. It comes down to how you conduct yourself through your life. That's what makes you a yogi. Mm -hmm. And there's something to be said about all of the human ability to pick up body language, Mm -hmm. to pick up energy, to pick up all this for when your yoga teacher first like greets you, there is so much information coming across there. And I know for myself going to, well, one working with many different yoga teachers that we have teach here, Mm -hmm. but going to different classes is you can tell those that are teaching it. And there's something that's like, yeah. Just that smile that that person gave me, like, makes me want to carry that smile and pass it on to somebody else. Totally. And I think that is the the big piece behind this mm-hmm. is what comes through non-verbally. Yes. And what we can feel. Yes. And, like, one of the big things for me as a yoga teacher, because I have the tight legs, the tight hips and all this, is as I was teaching my yoga class, I was using props. Mm-hmm. I was probably using more props than a lot of the students were. 
And at first you could see like some of the interesting looks. And then I reckon I had someone come up and tell me that like, this is a demonstration of contentment that you are okay in front of all of us using these props as, as tools for you and everything made me feel so much more comfortable in my body mm -hmm. to listen and to not see it as a competition and so forth. And that made me feel so much better as a yoga teacher uh, moving forward for sure. Yeah. Such a big part of a yogi's practice is knowing what the ego is good for and what it's not so good for. The ego is something that has a job. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't belong at the front of a class. Mm -hmm. It doesn't belong <laughs> in on your mat when you're teaching your students. Mm -hmm. There needs to be such an element of humility. Like these people are there looking to you for guidance that can either inflate your ego or humble the crap out of it. Because <laughs> and it should it should make you humble because they're looking for they're looking to you for your wisdom. And None of that is in your head. Mm -hmm. It's in your practice. It's in what you've done, the work that you've already done. Mm -hmm. That's what you are there to teach. I love even um, going into the meditation side of things. And I believe it is Mindfulness for Beginners by John Kabat-Zinn. Mm. He talks about how like the first five years of your meditation practice, don't even tell anybody that you're meditating. Don't even tell <laughs> yeah. people that you're doing it. That's your time totally. to build that wisdom that you're talking about, to let that integrate. Mm. And then maybe once you've had a chance to do some self-study on that, to say like, yeah, this is what I'm finding. And if you want to sit with me, I'll show you a little bit about what I'm doing. And it's just a completely different mindset than what we often face in today's society of like, I have the certificate now, I'm going to jump out. And, and there's something to be said. I yeah. do think that there is a whole realm of being a student that is opened up when you start to become a teacher. Oh, completely. I have learned more from my students than I could ever express. It's, it's something that's so, it forces you to learn mm -hmm. not only from, you know, I have to prepare this lesson. So I've got to like review and bone up on something, but their experiences are so unique mm -hmm. and different from your own. There's so much that, they have to teach you. It's so beautiful. So I don't want to belittle. I don't want to belittle, you know, the excitement that comes from um, becoming a teacher and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Yeah, but for sure. Definitely. Just like how we have our asana practice and then we need that shavasana at the end, that resting pose at the end to let it all integrate. So important. I think the whole world could just use a little bit more <laughs> shavasana, a little bit more integration with anything. In with, all with, the ways. <laughs> You know, often we go and we have a busy work day and we get home and we'll just try to go like either straight to the couch or we have dinner and then we're, we're just distraction, distraction, distraction. Mm -hmm. Even if you've had a stressful experience, or you've had a busy day, go into that Shavasana like state, that resting pose and let it integrate. Yeah. We need to be able to feel again for that self-study, but also to let it metabolize in our body. Completely. We need to be able to let the stuff that we're experiencing, whether it be our emotions, our, our feelings, our thoughts, yeah. integrate. Yeah. And I, I know that there's a lot of excitement around getting knowledge, really, you know, learning mm -hmm. and it exercises our brain in a way that's really great and gathering knowledge is, is a wonderful thing. And I think we should all be open to learning every moment, but yes, like you said, 
unless it's put into practice, unless it's integrated into your daily life, Mm -hmm. it stays as knowledge. Mm -hmm. When you bring it into your body in whatever way that looks like for you, when you bring it into your life, that's when it becomes wisdom. And that's where the teaching and sharing actually comes from Mm -hmm. in a life-changing way. Totally. Okay, so cool. just being aware of the time, because, well, you and I, we talk all the time. I know. <laughs> <laughs> but for the sake of the podcast, yeah. we've gone on a journey now. We've talked about, you know, the progression, learning the different aspects of yoga. We've gone in a little bit deeper about some of the... Di- and this is really, for those listening, this is scratching the surface. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to have a follow-up. Yeah, like there's 200-hour there's <laughs> yoga teacher trainings, there's 500-hour teacher trainings, then there's the lifetime of of learning that comes with these different practices. But um, as far as integrating this into people's lives, for those that are interested in trying yoga or learning yoga, I know one of the things that I want to just kind of dispel right now is Mm -hmm. this idea. And we hear it all the time here at the studio of while I'm interested in trying yoga, but I want to do some stuff on my own at first, just to get more flexible before I go into a class. Yes. And I think of it in terms of like, would you say that I want to, get more educated before I go to school. Like it's this interesting (laughs) mindset that people Mm. feel like taking that first step. And I'm not saying that everyone needs to, needs to go into a studio to practice yoga. This isn't some sort of like plug I'm trying to give, but to show up your mat and just see what you can do. There are modifications out there, whether you're pregnant, whether you have mobility issues, whether you need to do yoga in a chair can you speak a little bit to just how accessible this practice can be for people? Oh my goodness, so much and so much more now than ever before. Mm-hmm. Not only has yoga expanded so much in recent years to be accessible to all populations, people who are bedridden, people who do live in a wheelchair, people who have all kinds of mobility um, abilities and limitations. It's just so accessible now and knowing now that asana is such a small part Mm. yoga can look like anything Mm -hmm. at all it can be meditation it can be breath work it can be asana but it doesn't have to be Mm -hmm. go to a kundalini yoga class and have your whole perspective shift on absolutely it can be chanting it can be singing it can be dancing in your living room it can be all kinds of things Mm -hmm. that don't necessarily come to mind when we first think of yoga it's not all about downward facing dog Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's really not and and there's so many ways that we can do this especially right now You may not have access to a studio, but I do recommend learning from someone who is knowledgeable and who has lived this practice because they'll be able to guide you Mm. in the way that it will be most accessible for you and to set you up for success because you want to be able to take this practice and bring it into your daily life in a real way. And it's really, it's never been easier now with exactly. everything going online exactly. and, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, very true. And so just in the last few minutes that we have, like what you just mentioned, bringing mm-hmm. it in through dance and through all this kind of stuff, I feel like that's, as an observer, been a big part of your practice, mm-hmm. even in the last year. So you've oh, recently yeah. launched uh, your new brand of the Untamed Goddess. Yes. And I've noticed you still have your 
you know, your practice that you're doing on your mat on a regular basis. It seems like your practice is just expanding. Oh, yeah. But I'm watching, because <laughs> uh, we live in a very small uh, house, but I'm watching that it is turning into a lot more dancing. It's turning into a lot more free movement and all of this kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. that's what you, um, in your new coaching role, are bringing into other people's lives as well. So. Yeah. In the last uh, in the last couple of minutes, can you speak a little bit about that transformation and these other ways of finding yoga? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I explained this a little bit a little while ago to my current trainees um, mm-hmm. because we were talking about how your practice should evolve. It needs to evolve as you evolve, and the structured yoga practice, for example, Ashtanga yoga, as we practice it physically, is a set of postures. It's the same sequence. If you're doing the primary series, it's the same sequence every single time you come onto your mat. Mm -hmm. Structure is a great place to start Mm -hmm. because so many of us are disconnected from our bodies. We don't know how they want to move. We don't know what they need. Until you are in your body so fully and you've done so much of that self-study and you have the awareness to be able to look and listen to what your body's needs are and how they change every day, you kind of need a structure. Mm. When you're ready to move through your practice in a more personalized way, And you should start practicing at home as soon as you feel you can. And it can be one, two, or three postures. It doesn't have to be an hour. Then you start to really be able to listen because there's no one talking at you. You get to sit quietly or be in your body fully without distraction. And you start to learn from it. So over the years, and especially in the last year or so, my practice has evolved hugely. Right now, the way that my body is wanting to move is very much toward fluid, dance-like movement. I'm also a belly dancer, so I do incorporate a lot of Mm -hmm. belly dance type movement into my practice. But some days, for example, when I'm on my bleed, I need less movement. When I'm ovulating, I need a lot more movement. I need stillness. I need movement. I need a balance of the two. So my practice each day is I first sit or stand and just breathe and feel into what my body needs. And then I just kind of let it do what it wants. Mm -hmm. And it might be movement. It might be, nope, you're going to sit in this pose for 10 minutes. (laughs) So yeah, it's, uh, it's very personal and that comes with with practice and with listening awesome Mm. i think that's a good place to start because we're a little bit over time no worries but if people wanted to find out more about what you're doing in particular um how would they go about finding that information absolutely so we do offer yoga teacher training that is something that we do if you are really interested in the path of yoga and what it's all about um you can certainly find us at kalayoga.ca and send us an email or go to our teacher training page and find out more about that there. If you want to learn about more what I'm doing with the Untamed Goddess and I'm coaching women 
for their wellness, their sexuality, all kinds of things like that, including like movement practice and transformational work, um, then you can find me at theuntamedgoddess.ca. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook and all the places as well. So you can find me there. Um, you can also just send me an e email anytime you like info at theuntamedgoddess.ca. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lauren. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> we'll see you back at home. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Bye for now. <laughs>